I, I want to do a couple things this morning. Um, you know, we couldn't, here's part of the trouble. Many of you have continued to send suggestions, and that's very helpful uh, for books to read and things like that. Part of the trouble is we've read some very, very good books. You may, you may disagree. You may not like them. But I think all in all, they've been very, very good books um, all the way back, you know, to a few years ago. So part of the trouble is finding another good book, and part of the trouble is finding another good book from an author we haven't read recently. So we've read Eugene Peterson, Henry Nouwen, N.T. Wright. You know, once you get outside that realm, um, it may get a little sketchy. So we've looked at a number of options, uh, but we don't have that much time left. I think we've got about eight or nine weeks left. So we've got to figure out what we can do in that amount of time. Instead, at least today, and maybe we'll go week to week, I don't know, but today we're going to do a couple different things. I want to show you another short article from a different journal that I think will maybe tie up some loose ends from N.T. Wright. But first thing, I just want you to take a look at this photo, okay? Now, if you were eighth graders, I'd say, no talking while you look at this. Um, I don't want you to, don't chatter about it just yet. All I want you to do is either write down or, uh, or you know, at least in your, in your head, keep track of some of the thoughts you've got when you see this. What do you see? What do you think about? Um, and then we'll go from there. So, you know, you can chatter a little. I don't care actually that much. But uh, give folks a chance to at least look at this and observe. Okay? What comes to mind when you see this? Well, not yet. Not yet. Give him a few minutes. <laughs> Mr. Herdlicka, get control of this place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Really? Wow. That's great. Just take a look. Tell us, write down some thoughts. What do you see? What comes to mind? <laughs> what do you see? Anybody, just go right ahead. Tell me what you see, what you think. Okay. Look, really? It looks like masculine hands? Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Okay, very hard working. Good. Actually, let's keep track of a few of these. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. What else? Hardworking, servant, good. Are you a deaconess yet in a parish or no? Where are you at? Does St. Paul, are they able to afford new markers? <laughs> if they are, for Christmas, this is what I'd like. Have them send me a pack. No, 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 it's okay, it's all right. Hardworking, servant, what else? Yeah. Per Severance. <laughs> oh, okay, extending, maybe? Extending? Uh, yeah, okay, good. Plow, 
I didn't think about many of these, so this is actually kind of fun. Let's just say used well. What's that? Yeah, right. It almost gives the impression of um, they're all. You think so? Really? See, I, I, not that I disagree. It very well could be. I almost see it as she is uh, proud is not the right word. She is happy with what she's done. Really. Barn? What do you guys think? What does the young group think? <laughs> I'm looking at you. What does the young group think? Farm? I think you're probably right. Used well, hardworking, accomplished. Who said that? Gentle? Okay. Anything else? What else do you see? Okay. How about erasers? Do they have those out of St. Paul? <laughs> Wisdom, mother, tired. Tired, you said? I didn't see. I didn't know if you said tired or hired. Tired. Okay. Anything else? You've covered a lot, actually. This is, I had about one or two things, but this is great. <laughs> Anything else? Hands that have a history. Rich history. Okay. Anything else? Keep going. Keep going until you're all out. It does. It almost, yeah, it almost looks divine, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Almost, uh, I, I do have it up in my office. Uh, yeah, I do. It almost is divine, or it almost is uh, sacramental. In a sense, you, there's a connection to what you see on Sunday, right? What else? Anything? All right, perfect. Put that down. We'll look at this article. This article will tell you a little bit, of, a little something about about this photo, or at least how you should read the photo. There's four. I'll give you one to pass back to Mary, okay? How many of you are Valpo grads? <laughs> one. Well, this is the official magazine of Valparaiso University. 
Don't tell Abby. I'll get a subscription for Christmas for her. There you go. Uh, this is a great little article on um, what? Yeah, right. This is a great little article on pop culture. So I just want to read this. It's just a couple pages long. I just want to read this to you. And think about this in the context of N.T. Wright and how you engage the culture, okay? U2's Pop Mart tour in support of its 1997 album, Pop, was announced in the New York City Kmart on Ash Wednesday. The blue light was flashing overhead when the juxtaposition of their announcement of the garnish, uh, <laughs> garish, sorry, garnish, garish. Thank you, Betty, that's why you're here. Pop Mart tour in Kmart on Ash Wednesday was pointed out to the band. Their lead singer, Bono, replied, Ash Wednesday in Kmart. That about wraps it up. That's a joke. You guys can all, <laughs> only Stacia laughs. It says a lot about you. The third song on the album titled Mofo, don't laugh. <laughs> uh, only a certain demographic in the room understands that. <laughs> Has a line that puts it similarly, looking for the baby Jesus under the trash. Millions have lined up to see this band over the 30-year ride on top of the pop charts. Nearly half their fans say they've had a spiritual experience or been drawn deeper into faith in God through their engagement with this pop band. Okay? I mean, if you, read, if you read theological articles, kind of popular articles, Bono is all over them, right? Bono's all over them. In order to make sense of this, apparently, we'd best not ask theologians. Writing in the most recent Christian Century, a magazine, Theologian Charles, uh, Charles Matthews laments that by and large the interests of academic theologians such as myself are determined by the fleeting fashions of our field more than by any vivid concern with the lived lives of churches. So we float ever further into abstractions and esoterica. The vicar said yesterday before, he, before uh, or Wednesday, he said, I can't wait to be out of the seminary so I can talk like a normal human being. Okay, that's what he's saying here. I would think theologians would be in the lead here. What's going on? This seems similar to what happens when someone who loves organ and choral music at church looks down their nose at entertainment-style worship led by guitar, bass, and drums. Assumptions rule and drive judgments and commitments. Whether or not you agree with entertainment style, that's not the point. The point is assumptions rule and drive judgments and commitments. Okay? If you assume, Stacia, it's bad. <laughs> no, I'm not. For the sake of the life of spiritually engaged people today, many of whom are not active in a congregation of any faith tradition, theologians might want to reconsider following you two and looking for, quote, the baby Jesus under the trash. He was, after all, born amidst manure and straw. One would imagine that today Christ might be found elsewhere than our nice, clean, and utterly upbeat churches. Our coiffed choirs and soaring organs seemed altogether too established for this rebel lord who kept breaking open the circle, demarcating insiders and outsiders. Okay? Again, take all this with a grain of salt. The point is not, that's not the point of the article. In this brief reflection, I offer some orienting comments about culture and pop culture, as well as an apology for more focused theological attention to what people love, listen to and are moved by for the sake of ministry in the world as God loves, listens to, and is moved by. Without getting too bogged down in comparing various academic definitions, let me suggest some common definitions of culture. When asked, people might say such things as, quote, what we make versus what is naturally, or 
the stuff of our lives, including language and making meaning of that stuff. That's a good start. To build on it, let me introduce a helpful perspective drawn from a sociologist, Anne Swidler, who teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. Rather than speaking of culture as out there, this is very important, rather than speaking of culture as out there as a thing, she tries to sift through, uh, tries to shift to thinking about the use of culture. She speaks of culture as a toolkit by which we do the things we do. We live through and by culture, so to speak. Here is her definition. Culture is a toolkit of symbols, stories, rituals, and worldviews which people may use in varying configurations to solve different kinds of problems. Drawing from the work of French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, Swidler notes, Swidler, however you say it, notes how often culture shapes us, how it forms the assumptions we make, the way we see the world, and therefore the actions we imagine are possible and reasonable. Try this exercise meant to elicit some of our cultural assumptions. Write down, or make a mental note of, your response to the picture on this page. Take a minute to really look at it and let your responses come to clarity, which is what you just did, okay? What came to mind as you looked at this picture? When Pierre Bourdieu did this experiment, he found that those from a higher socioeconomic class and those who were likely also more or urbanized, organized, urbanized, were interested in the photo as a, as a beautiful, if painful, metaphor for age or life difficulty. Those with closer proximity to the hard labor of the working class feel visceral horror at the deformity of these hands and commented about the actual difficulty of a life of hard labor. Now just look at your answers, okay? Just look, at, just look at our answers. This is, again, this is not a criticism. This is just who we are. This is just culture. Just look at our answers. Poverty may have been the only one, but even that was not, there was no visceral reaction when that was given. Hardworking, painful, you know, healing, servant, perseverance, tired, mother, wisdom, gentle, accomplished, farm, used well, history, divine, sacramental. That would be more in line with a beautiful, if painful, metaphor for age or life's difficulty. So it tells you something about us. The point is that who we are, how we were raised, the sorts of families, schools, and so on that formed us shape our cultural sensibilities and frame how we live. The assumptions we make, the actions we see as possible and appropriate, and so on. Culture consists of more than objects out there, okay? It consists of material life of which we are part and parcel. I think a lot of times when we've, when we've done the study on N.T. Wright, we've talked about culture out there. It's actually culture in here. This is important later on, so we'll return to this point. Now to distinguish what we mean by popular culture. My focus is not simply culture as a whole, which I believe has pretty limited use usefulness anyway, since what really exists are cultures, subcultures, and so on, rather than the generic concept of culture. Rather, I'm interested in the category of popular culture. And so we need to specify what we mean with that distinction. Again, as with culture generally, there are many def uh, definitional debates here that I don't want to get bogged down in. For our purposes, I simply demarcate the lines between pop culture, high culture, and folk culture. And believe me, you'll be able to find your place in all of these. High culture is distinguished in part by its limited audience. However, its audience is limited on purpose by virtue of the fact 
that it is addressed to people with very particular training or knowledge, usually connected to socioeconomic and educational level. For example, I recently chaperoned an elementary school trip, including my children, to the American Ballet Theater production of Romeo and Juliet at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. We all had been reading Shakespeare for children, getting the kids up to speed on this classic tale. We went on Wednesday afternoon and sat in the highest section, appropriately called the family circle. While I thought the kids behaved well, a crabby usher scolded us during intermission for clapping at the wrong times, saying that we upset the dancers. <laughs> that would be me. Take home message, go away until you can learn to behave properly. Um, I once got invited to a very nice uh, golf club in, uh, I think it's in Glen Ellen, and talk about high culture. <laughs> Who did I go with? I don't know. I think it was maybe with your family. Uh, uh, and, and talk about, it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't condescending. But unless you're in that culture all the time, you have no idea how to act. I had no idea that when I walked in, I was supposed to look for the locker with my name on it. And that when I got out of my car, the guy was going to take my bag for me, right? Doesn't usually happen. You take your own bag. There are no lockers. After, the, you, know, after you played golf, they were going to clean your shoes for you. That is high culture. And if you don't know the culture, you get embarrassed very easily. Okay? You know this. You've all experienced this. A limited audience also distinguishes folk culture. However, this is not an intentional limit, but more of a functional one. So high culture intentionally limits. Folk culture functionally limits. I think of the children's choir at the local church as an example. The point here is that their song is intended to praise God and uplift the congregation gathered for that specific service. Mark Chavez, a sociologist from the University of Arizona, has done the most extensive survey of congregations in America. He says, these are congregations, they are the single largest producers and sponsors of the arts, but it is folk art mostly created by and for those gathered in a particular place. Bono, U2's lead singer, has said this is one of his favorite aspects of church and always has been. He calls congregational singing a community art. Okay? So the congregation, that folk culture is intended specifically for the group of people gathered there. It's, it's completely functional, whoever shows up. Popular culture, the young folks in the back should start to get excited, then means that something has, whether by intention or by accident, gained a widespread audience. Take jazzman Louis Armstrong as an example here. His signature song, What a Wonderful World, was not a hit in the U.S. and had an initial print run of 1,000. But it was a number one hit in Europe where Armstrong was a major star, and over time, largely, largely because of its use on television and in movies, the song has become a classic on par with Frank Sinatra's version of New York, New York. While I am not delving into the issue in any depth here, obviously media, media corporations have enormous power in shaping popular culture. Every summer, the Disney marketing juggernaut transforms thousands of fast food restaurants and cereal boxes into billboards for the kids' blockbuster of the season. On Mondays, I take Emma to McDonald's for a chicken nugget Happy Meal. And every Monday, she says, as we walk in the door, Daddy, what's the toy? Okay? Tells you something about popular culture. Her hope is, there is a new toy. Even a two-and-a-half-year-old knows when I go, there might be a new toy next week. And she's now begun to associate the toy with the movie. Very scary. Although it's better than when we first went, because she would go up. You know, they, they display the toys in those big. She'd go up and just start shaking it. <laughs> and what I love about the McDonald's I go to is 
I don't see anyone from church there. Um, but the, the employees were very gra gracious to start, but now they kind of look at me like, who's controlling your kid? I'm sorry, as I'm ordering and she's shaking the machine going, what's the toy, what's the toy? So now they like lay all of them out there on the counter and say, pick the one you want. <laughs> we have six pink kitties right now for the movie, uh, what's that movie that's coming out about the pet shop or something? You know what I'm talking about? What's that? No, maybe not. It's the one where they transform the hotel into a dog place. Yeah, I think that's it. Oh, I don't know. I'm not up. I'm not up on pop culture. An example from a recent season success in the film Ratatouille. I've never seen it, thankfully. About a French rat. Why would you? Why would you watch a movie about a rat who works in a kitchen? About a French rat who has extraordinary culinary gifts and wants to be a chef. Oh, geez. In other words, many times popular artists are backed by powerful media companies and have access to major distribution networks that contribute to their popularity, okay? If culture gets behind you, you're going to be a success. Still, many artists have this backing and fail, while, while others, without it nonetheless, make their way into the popular culture. Okay, now here's the gist. Given the media's influence in creating pop culture, why pay serious attention to popular culture? Why not dismiss it as so much fluff, entertainment created for the masses, and not worthy of serious attention? Which I fear is sometimes what we do, me included. Let me share a brief testimony on this point. I used to think pop schmop. Why should I pay attention to what everybody's doing? I took it as a badge of honor that I didn't even have a television, let alone watch one. You know people like this, yes? I smiled knowingly at the mention of the name Michael Foucault. He's a French philosopher, very famous one, especially in postmodernism. While enjoying being clueless about the zip code for Beverly Hills, that would be 90210, and it was a hit show on Fox, and is back on again, right? While on internship, parishioners would ask me if I'd seen some show or caught a news clip, and I'd say, no, I don't have a TV. Kindly, they didn't imagine I was being condescending. They just assumed I was too poor to afford one. So as a going away present at the end of the year, they gave me a TV and a VCR. <laughs> Isn't Lutheranism great? Their point was, you can't relate to your congregation very well if you don't know what they're watching. Fair enough. I now have a TV and DVD player and credit that congregation, Bethlehem, Oakland, if you know it, for poking a hole in my self-righteousness and helping me see that if I wanted to do ministry, I need to pay closer attention to what people actually do day to day and not just read books on cultural critique. Okay? That's true, right? It's very true. The incarnation, God in flesh, raises the question of just where we think we'd find God working to reconcile the world to himself, if not under the trash of our contemporary culture. Let's get digging. Okay? All right, reaction. Yep, okay. Yep, right. Right. Let me let me rephrase the question. Let's ask it this way. Can you maintain what's important to you as a church while recognizing 
uh, the cultural context in which the church lives. Okay? Can you maintain, uh, can you maintain what, what has been given to the church for 2,000 years um, while also acknowledging, not entertaining, but acknowledging the cultural context in which you live? Yeah. Okay. So in the church, we probably can look at that and say, oh, look, the church is accepting this. Yes, I think the point you raise is a very good one. Here, there are two ways to observe culture and engage it. One, I would say, is proper, and one is improper. The, the improper way would be to say, we, I think I showed this to you months ago. Um, remember that article I gave you from, I think it was from the Wall Street Journal, called Click in Remembrance of Me? Remember that? Where Churches are now having the Eucharist over the internet because so many people are, it's an internet culture, right? You go on Facebook, you can watch the adoration of the host at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Um, you can click a button, you can put bread and wine out in your house, click a button, and the internet will speak the words of institution, and then you have the Lord's Supper. That would be an improper way of engaging culture. The proper way, though, let's take Facebook or the internet, what are people ultimately after? Uh, in the use of Facebook. Community, right? That's what they're ultimately after. So if you know that that's what they're after, and community in and of itself is not a bad thing, if you know that that's what, they, what they're after, you can then begin to engage culture and love them the way that they need to be loved, which is community. You can say, Facebook is great, but guess what? We have something even better than Facebook, okay? Right. Right. And look deep down at what it really is people are after. Part of the reason they like humor is because they have no joy in their life. So they need some joy. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean your sermons become a stand-up routine, but it means you can have a little which I would be very happy to do, by the way. I've got a long they're getting there. I know, I, I believe me, I know. There are no more. I'm never gonna say again that was a joke in a sermon. Although it was very uh, all seriousness. As I used to say to Abby when we were dating, because I'd joke a lot, and I'd say, serious, Josh. This is serious, Josh. It was striking to me on Ash Wednesday when I said, uh, we're, a bit like, uh, we're a bit like a man who goes to the gym for the sake of being seen going, and nobody laughed. And I said, that was a joke. And the place kind of erupted like they were on edge the entire sermon. <laughs> but it shows you where the congregation is at and where the world is at. Everything is falling apart in the world, and people are always on edge. And they don't even know now when to have fun or when to laugh. Very different, different sort of world. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. I think the point you're making is a good one, which is people can sniff out something that's fake. Yeah. Because especially, especially in postmodernism, to be authentic is to be real. And to be real is to be human. So if you're not authentic, you're almost subhuman in postmodern culture. So you need to be real and authentic. And at the same time, yeah, and at the same, well, at the same, at, well, they know when you're not real. They know when you're not real. The incarnation means that humans are real. You know, and if you're acting fake, it's subhuman. And if it's subhuman, it's hard to say you're a Christian. Christianity, the point of the incarnation is that people can be real human beings. Part of the struggle in the early, early church was they were saying deny everything that's human and rejoice in everything that's spiritual. This is Gnosticism. And John's gospel in particular is written against this heresy. That's why it begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was made flesh. Meaning Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. That's why people criticize him. But he was real. He didn't just walk in and say, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to die. He walked in and said, let me have a glass, right? That's part of it. That's part of it. While not, of course, standing in the way of the gospel. So you never do anything then that would give offense to the gospel, but you rejoice in being in community with other folks. Yeah, good point. What else? You had something. No idea. <laughs> well, that, no, you're exactly right, actually. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. And not of any idea. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Grain's going to sell for what it is. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's why, that's actually a great point. And what she's, remember at the very beginning she says, there's no such thing as just generic culture, right? You can't just say all culture... Yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. So she says there are subcultures. There are subcultures within the church body. So the subculture in this specific area is going to be different than the subculture in the Iowa East District, right? It's going to be a different subculture. And part of the trouble, you're right, is that guys go to the seminary and, one, have no culture. I mean, they just, you know. Oh, and, and then they go out to a parish. Yes. And the struggle is to impose that culture. If a pastor comes out and tries to impose that culture on, on the culture to which he's been sent, if I go to Iowa East and say, we're going to read N.T. Wright on postmodernism, that's not being a faithful pastor, right? We should read about you know, how to survive when there's you know, a drought. That's what we should read about. Um, part of the reason we've read it here is that's the culture here. Wheaton College, all the places in the, you know, in the year. And you can argue whether or not that's completely true. But that really is the subculture here. You're near Chicago. You're by Wheaton College. 
you got all this stuff going on, and you see it, um, we'd know by now a year in, especially with the catechumenate, whether or not we were wrong on that. You know, if we were wrong, it would have been a flop. I don't think there are some things that could be changed, but it wasn't a flop. In Iowa East, it may be a flop. So you've got to love the people differently there because you've got to love people the way that they need to be loved. Right? Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Here, here's, here's, yeah, here's the point, actually. Pop culture, what's popular in an area like this so close to Chicago is actually high culture here, right? It's actually high culture. You've got you've to know the lingo. It, and so if you walk in from outside, that doesn't mean you're not exposed to pop culture. In Iowa, they still have TVs, right? But it means that doesn't, that it's not an elitist sort of thing. They don't even know about that. For them, farming may be a high culture. If I walked out on the farm, I wouldn't have any idea what to do. And they would say, look at that goofball. He doesn't know how to drive the tractor. He doesn't know how to do anything. For them, that's their high culture. And that doesn't mean it's, that by high I mean a certain group of pe people know about it, and it takes a certain educational level to know that. Right? They're trained by their fathers and their mothers. They go to college to be farmers and agriculture. Here it's, it's different. So pop culture in Wheaton is almost high culture. You, you understand that? Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. But you, I hope you at least see. I hope you at least see. This is why. This is why at least. I'm not saying you give into the culture. What I'm saying is you know the culture. There's no way what you led with, which was you have to be real, you have to engage people where they're at. You can't do that unless you know the culture. And that's the point of what we've talked about. You can, at the end of this, on your, you know, on your deathbed, you can say, I wish I never would have read N.T. Wright, which is fine. But at least it gave you some way to engage the culture. And that's what, I mean, make disciples and make them stronger. You have to know who the disciples are before you can make them and make them stronger. Yeah, oh yeah. That, that happens, I mean, yeah, pick your thing. If you walk in and act like you own the place, it's a no-go. But sometimes the way they bring you into the culture is actually without even talking about it. They bring you in by just letting you experience it. That's, that's, that's what we talked about at the very beginning, the very first week, the difference between primary theology and secondary theology. The liturgy, especially a church that's liturgical, has its own culture. And when you walk in here on Sunday, if you don't know the culture, 
you would be, you won't be successful if you walk in and own the place. So you walk in in humility and say, I don't know what's going on. And the proper response should be, we read it in Durham Cathedral's introduction. The proper response should be, don't worry, you're going to get it, right? If I walk out on the farm, I'm not going to say, show me how to start the tractor. I'm going to say, I'm going to hop on the back and watch you drive this thing for about two years, and then maybe I'll get in the driver's seat and drive it, right? If I just get in and start driving, I'm going to be in the backseat of a police car, right? How the deaconess is doing? All right, take this all back to St. Paul, St. Peter. St. Paul. All right. What else? Yeah. Yes. I think what you have to do is you have to, it's like anything else in the church, I think you have to walk in. Uh, and that's what I'm talking about, yeah. I think you have to, in engaging the culture, you have to size the culture up, which is sometimes an, an arduous task. It takes a long time. You have to size the culture up and specifically ask, what is the culture engaged in? And, and behind that, what's troubling them? I think Facebook's a great example. I mean, Facebook, what's the other thing, Twitter? You know, like, I don't want anyone to know what I do all day long, but some people do. So what is the trouble, what is the trouble that's trying to be solved behind culture's engagement? Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And then I think you need to ask a lot of questions. I think if you, asserting would be to walk in and act like you own the place. To ask questions is to try to get a feel for what's going on, and, and, and ask questions <laughs> To assert is prideful. To ask questions is humbling. You walk and you ask questions. Once you've got it all sized up, then you deliver the Jesus that those people need. Okay? This is the Jesus propria. Jesus, the great thing about Jesus is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he addresses people wherever they're at. So you don't just have a Jesus who says, um, rise and be well. You have a Jesus who drinks coffee with people. You have a Jesus who drinks with people. You have a Jesus who does this with people and that with people. Jesus is specific to a given situation. So you size them up, ask a lot of questions, and then deliver the Jesus that they need. And I would at least propose to you that the Jesus in this culture, and I mean, you know, the 10 or 15 miles around this area is a Jesus who addresses people who are lonely and unloved, who lack community, who lack beauty, who lack justice, who lack spirituality. At least those things in a Christological sense. Right? At least those things in a Christological sense. That's what I would propose to you. Yeah. There really are. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. I, I completely agree. There are some universal um, cult cultural cues, and there are some that are unique to different places. But yeah, like for justice, for example, everybody's after justice. Yeah, right. All right, do you have to go? That ended on a good note. Because you got to talk last. <laughs> See ya. What else? Anything else about the, I've got one more thing that we can do, uh, but I want to make sure you get everything out on the article that you wanted to get out. Okay. What I, uh, I think at least culture in this area, um, since we've talked about pop culture, um, one thing that we aren't doing very well, or culturism, is listening. And one thing we do very well, or one thing we're after, is a story. So we, we're after a story. We preached on this for a long time, trading in your story for another story. Culture is after a story. They want to be redefined by something. But one thing they're not very good at is listening when someone tries to give you a story or give you a new story. So what we tried to do with the catechumen, at least, was, um, and some of you were involved in this, is that African Bible study where it involved listening and then receiving Jesus' story. So what it did was you would read a text for Sunday and people would just listen. And then you gave a chance for people to comment on what they heard. Remember, listening is a struggle. And then, and then you pointed them back to the story of Jesus. This is what I heard as the leader. And then you did it again. And the goal was two or three times people begin to hear different things. How many of you have been to church more than once on a weekend? How many, by the third or fourth time you, you've been there, you've heard something different than you heard the first time? You ever that happen where you're listening to the gospel especially, and you say the first time, wow, that was great, and then you hear it again, you say, well, I didn't know he said that. And then you hear it the third time and say, wow, he really did say that. And the fourth time you say, I didn't hear that either. You hear something different every time you listen. So what I want to do is I want to do exactly that. I want to read you the gospel for Sunday, since we're talking about culture and what culture is after, and just have you listen. Okay, just a few verses, um, you know, six or seven verses. I just want you to listen, and then we'll just go around the room. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to. One of the great struggles was we tried this with high school kids in a liturgical setting, um, and everybody just sat there, kind of looked at it. it was, thankfully, it was Pastor Nelson leading, not me, because I would have I just started talking. But he was very good. He just, he just waited, and finally someone spoke up, and then other people spoke up. But you don't have to comment if you don't want to, but it would be nice if a few of you at least have something, just what did you hear? You can say, I heard monkeys are going to fly out of Jesus' ear, and that would be fine, okay? What a, there's no wrong answer. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Okay, what did you hear? Okay. Isn't that neat? Jesus equates himself to the serpent in Numbers 21. That's actually the Old Testament text. And it comes right before John 3.16. What else? Okay. Good. Anybody hear anything else? Uh, yeah, abide with me. The darkness deepens, Lord with me abide, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Let me read it again. Just listen again, okay? See if you hear anything else. Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. That they're afraid of Jesus. Yeah. When, well, yeah, Jesus is there to be condemned. That's the point. Jesus doesn't come to condemn. Jesus comes to be condemned. He's the one who's afraid. Right? You see this, especially with people, especially people who are dying. You see this a lot. Um, But if you're in Christ, um, you cannot be condemned. You actually can't. Because the son's been condemned already. And if the father's going to condemn you, he's got to condemn his son again. And he'll never do that. What else? Yeah.
yeah, he delivers. Once you're in Jesus, yeah, you can certainly, um, you can certainly walk in the darkness or walk in the light. Um, but he dies. He dies to bring you into himself. And then he says, live freely within me, which is more of a gospel way of saying it. Having a choice isn't necessarily a, um, a gospel way or a Lutheran way of saying it. But I take the point. The point is, when you're in Jesus, you're free. Yeah, very hard to turn down a gift, though, isn't it? <laughs> like new markers. If you were to give us new markers, it would be very, very difficult for me to. I understand the point, but the Lord doesn't dwell on choices. He dwells on the gift. So that's what. That's right. Yeah, no one else could make, no one else could pay for your sin. That's right. There's been a lot of swearing today. I'm very surprised at all that. I'm glad this isn't going on the radio. I'm very sorry about it. Don't take this back to St. Paul's. You notice, I didn't swear, just so you know. Yeah, that's, that's why uh, in James, it's fascinating. This Sunday, we'll look at James 2 in Bible study, and it says, faith without works is dead. And the word they're used for dead, this is, I didn't actually realize this until yesterday. The word they're used for dead is nekros, which is the same word used in Ephesians 2 of the Christian before baptism. A dead person can't make a choice, right? You ever seen ER? ER is almost over. Dr. Green came back, right? Well, in a vision of sorts. Um, when you bring someone to the ER and they're completely flatlined, you know, you never see the patient say, ooh, put the paddles on and shock me because a dead person can't make a decision. But once he's alive, then he can say, yeah, this is how I want to live or this is not how I want to live. But you see in, in James it says faith without works is dead. That, that necros word is the biblical word for roadkill, right, which is the same word for someone in the ER. So if you're not, if you're not living the Christian life, it says your faith is roadkill. It's very hard to revive roadkill. You can't do it yourself. Um, the Lord's got to do it to you. It's fascinating. What else did you hear? Yeah. There are people are drawn to it. As much as the light can draw when you're in the darkness, um, it's not so much that the darkness draws you in. It does draw you deeper. This is why you know it says where the law increased, sin increases, right? So when you're, when you're in the darkness, it draws you deeper into the darkness. But the other part of it is when you're so far in the darkness, you become afraid of the light. It's very easy to live in the darkness. Imagine all the things, all the sins you can commit in the darkness and how difficult, difficult it would be to commit those sins in the light. You know, adultery usually happens in the darkness, <laughs> right? If you're going to rob a store, you do it in the darkness. So there are all these sins you can do in the darkness. And once you get so sucked in, it takes, and, I, and I'm not being facetious, it takes a miracle to get you out. That's how the darkness works. And 
Some people relish in it. Some people are just scared of the light. Face to face is the way of the light. Uh, but the way of the darkness is where anything goes. So, But you are right. It's a scary thing. What else? Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's similar to, remember it says in the Psalms, uh, he went to his death and didn't open his mouth, which means he, he was led to the slaughter, it says. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he didn't open his mouth, which means the son is completely obedient and passive. Someone is someone is pushing him along the way. It's like Isaac, right? Genesis 22. Yeah, the father's pulling him all the way to redemption. Because the father, this is the point that you made, the father ex- the father uses up all the condemnation he has inside of himself on his own son. The son receives the condemnation for the world. But the good news in that is you don't have to. Unless, of course, you live in the darkness, because in the darkness what you've said is, I'll take the cross myself. So then you've got to bear the sins of the world, which is an impossible task unless you're Jesus. What did you have? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell, I can tell you a cool story about the spoken word. Uh, this Taylor who just had a baby. Have you heard this? Did I tell you this? Okay, good. Um, I went to the hospital on Tuesday. Baby was in the in the NICU. Breathing was way up, 78 or no, 78 or 80. They said normal is 30 to 60. So we went down to the baby. The dad and I went down to the baby and prayed the Good Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23. Said some prayers with the baby. Look up, his breathing's at 46. The nurse said this hasn't happened in you know 24 hours. It's completely normal. Um, so there is there is some power in the spoken word. You know, Jesus actually gets inside of people when you speak. It's a great, it's a, it was a great thing to witness. You actually see it also when you go see people who are ill and their blood pressure's up. And when you speak, how it just calms them. It's a great thing. Let me read it one more time, okay? Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. What did you hear? Anything new? Yeah. Isn't that great? He loves the world. He loves everything about the world, even though it's terrible, because he's in the process right now of making it new, right? But yeah, he loves the trees and the animals, and he loves rain, and he loves snow, and he loves 
Christians and non-Christians, he loves everything about it. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. He, yes, he does. He begins Genesis by saying, let there be light. And in the scriptures, remember in the very last couple chapters of scripture, it says, there'll be no darkness because the lamb is its light. So scripture ends with Jesus saying, let there be light. Begins and then ends with him saying, there's no need of light because I'm the light. It's great. Scripture begins and ends with the light. What's the problem in the text? The darkness. Okay? Yeah. 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 That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. You have to frustrate evil before evil frustrates you. And it may be frustrating you already, but you've got to frustrate evil anyways. Because I just saw on Sunday we got tickets to go see the screw tape letters, which is this very point. The devil is still at work, um, and he's got no need, as, they, as C.S. Lewis calls him, our father below. He has no need to be working in the darkness, but continues to work his tail off in the light. Right. That's right. That's right. Right. That's exactly right. Working right now. He's probably sitting right there. Watch out, Betty. Watch out. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's not saying that. I think what it's saying is, I think what it's saying, I think, I think it's a reference to the last day when there will be judgment. And what he's saying is, if you don't believe, your condemnation's coming already. You don't have to wait for the last day for the Lord to say you're condemned. You're already condemned. However, the point is, he can still bring you out of it. I think what they're referencing, they're referencing when Jesus returns, People may at this time have been saying to him, well, there's no condemnation till the last day. I can kind of do what I want and square things up later. And he's saying, if you don't believe, you're actually, you're condemning yourself already. But the Lord never gives up on people. This is how the Lord loves the world. Yeah. So it's not like if you're an unbeliever right now, you're going to hell. It means you have to wait for the last day for the Lord to say you're an unbeliever. You are. Yeah. Yeah. may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Right. Whoever does what is true, okay?
right. Yep. Yeah, yes. That's exactly right. True deeds are forgiven deeds because true is an objective standard. How does scripture divide, uh, um, what's the word I'm define? It's been a long day. How does scripture define truth? Remember we say in the proper preface for, for Lent that we might prepare joyfully, we might be prepared, be prepared, passive, be prepared joyfully to celebrate the Paschal Feast in sincerity and truth. The resurrection of Jesus is true. That's an objective standard. It happened. So anything that happens in truth happens in forgiveness. And a forgiven work is a good work because it's the Lord doing it, not you. So true works happen in God. False works, unforgiven works, may be good, but it's you doing them and not the Lord. So it's not the kind of good that the Lord says, wow, that was good. Thank you very much. You know what I mean? Yeah, don't ask the question. It's the wrong question. Yep. Just do it. Yep. Don't, here's, a, here's a better way of saying it. Don't get in the way. Stay out of the way and let the Lord do with you what he wants to do with you. Right? You saying, I'm going to do this because it's good work, that's getting in the way. Stay out of the way. Very difficult. You have a very you have a you have a tension there because we always say good works just happen naturally. Then James says, if you're not doing good works, you're not a Christian. In fact, your faith is necros. Well, right. Yeah. Remember, remember what remember what Jesus says. He says it's not what goes into a man that condemns him. It's what comes out, okay? It's not what goes in. He's talking there about eating different foods. It's not, it's not that you eat meat and you shouldn't eat meat. It's what comes out. And part of that is verbal. James is all about taming the tongue. It's verbal, but it's also about, and, and the verbal part there is gossip and slander and, and all those things that happen in the darkness. But the other part of that is what comes out specifically is, is the, the life you live. So there is a sense in which it's very natural. It's only natural when you're in Christ. Otherwise, it's unnatural. <laughs> it's natural when it's in Christ. But there is also a sense in which you can say, I'm being used well, which is very different than saying, I've done 22 good things this past week. You can say, I'm being used well. That's a gospel way of talking. And if you're being used well, then you have faith, faith that's not necros. It's actually resurrected. It's alive. It does. Yeah. Especially Lutherans. Especially Lutherans. Because Lutherans, because we've been taught to, the, the trouble is not that we've been taught to hate good works. There are many Lutherans that, that do many good things. The trouble is we've been taught to not even, or think about them, or worry about them. Or, and, and again, if our problem was that we were doing so many things, then that would be a valid concern. We should say, don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay. Don't worry about how, don't add them up. Don't add them up. It's all going to be okay. Our problem is we don't really even talk about them or think about them. So in talking about them, you begin to think about them, you begin to name them, you begin to number them. 
And you may get to a point where you have to say, okay, don't talk about them. It's all going to be okay. The pastoral thing is to find out where people are. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly right. But this is, this is what I said early on, which was Jesus addresses people specifically where they're at. So a, a given community could be addressed as, don't think about it, you're, being, you're fine. Or a community could be addressed as, um, let's pick up the pace a little. Let's go. Come on, this is the Christian life. Yeah. Yes, it does, yeah. Yep. And even, yeah. And this is especially Lutheran culture, the Lutheran subculture. Because some Lutheran subcultures, um, uh, a woman just said the other day, I've never once been in a Catholic church. And I was kind of stunned when I had heard this for fear that somehow she'd be, I presume, poisoned or something. Um, but that's a different kind of subculture. And, and, and that doesn't, I think that's very wrong, but that's the subculture that's at work there. It's a different subculture for someone who grew up as a Roman Catholic or grew up in the last 20 or 30 years in the Lutheran Church. Just, you're exactly right, it's a very different subculture. And where you came from, I presume some of the stuff in the book or even in Bible study, that, that rubs against the subculture you grew up in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I completely understand. Yep. Yeah, and that's a very that's a very that's a very evangelical way of thinking. Not even Roman, people pin it on Roman Catholicism. It's actually an evangelical way of thinking, and you've got that subculture at play here. So what we're trying to show is Christologically driven. That means driven by Jesus alone. Those are the good works we're after. But Jesus does, he does exhort people. Come on, let's move, let's go. Love the poor, feed the hungry. Remember, he says in the in the last chapters of, of Matthew, he says. Uh, when did we feed you? When did we give you clothing? When did we come visit you? If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Right? So that's a, it's a very difficult thing. It's got to be, you got to tread lightly. But you can't be afraid to say to people, this is the life we're supposed to live. Because Jesus does that. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it does. It, there's a great book by Henry Nouwen. You should probably read it. It's very, sh it's very short. It's very, it's a great book. The Selfless Way of Christ, it's called. It's like 40 pages. You could read it in an hour. The Selfless Way of Christ. And what he talks about is upward mobility, he calls it, which is the world's way of progression, especially the business world, where you're always trying to move up the ladder to the next best thing. And what he says is the Christian life is completely upside down. It's downward mo mobility. But he shows that even in downward mobility, that doesn't mean you stop working. You actually work harder, but you're working for a different cause, which is for Jesus. But it's a great, I mean, you could, you could get it and pass it around, and everybody could read it in a week. It's so good. And it's very, it's very short and easy to read, but it's called The Selfless Way of Christ. In fact, I may have a copy if you, I can give it to you, yeah. Anything else from the text?
You guys got to get your kids? Yes. Yeah. 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 The letting it go happens once it's all been confessed, right? So once, so let, let, let me just say it this way. You can do evil things in the darkness, right? You can do evil things. And, and pick your evil thing. I mean, sometimes they're not as drastic as adultery. Sometimes they are. But anything, gossip, slander, going back and forth with people, um, all of that, are the, all those are the works of darkness. So the way you square those up is you confess face to face, you say, I did this, I've, I've hurt other people, here's what I've done. Confess face to face, you're forgiven, and once it's forgiven, then it's forgotten. Remember um, in the Psalms, it talks over and over about, you know, remember not our iniquities, remember not our sins. So the Lord has a terrible memory when it comes to your sins, and he has a phenomenal memory when it comes to his mercies. He cannot remember your sins, which is part of the reason why people come to private confession. Once it's forgiven, it's never spoken of again. Because the Lord actually forgets. The Lord actually forgets. And the only way he'll remember is if you bring it up again. Right? So by, by saying you just need to let him go, what I'm talking about there is after it's been forgiven. Then it's as though it never happened. I had someone say to me once, right after, right after they confessed and were forgiven, they said, well, I want to talk about that real quick. And I said, about what? I want to talk about what? I said, no, it's all been done. We don't need to talk about it anymore. But in the repenting part, if you rob a bank, you don't just say, forgive me, and not give the money back. You give the money back, and then you're forgiven. And then it's as though it never happened. You may still go to jail, <laughs> but that's the world's way of justice. But in the church, it's as though we treat you like, you know, you're a newborn baptized Christian. It never happened. Okay? All right, let's pray, and then we'll go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.